This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. All right, and welcome to Tax Tuesday. My name is Toby Mathis. And I'm Jeff Webb. And uh, we are doing our best to bring some tax knowledge to the masses. And today is going to be no different. We're going to dive right on in. going to let everybody fill up the room. Let me see if I can actually see how many people are coming in. There we go. So we see you guys coming into the room. And if you're on YouTube, we're probably just live streaming to you. So we'll give it just a second to let everybody get going. That'll be the fun part. All right. So let's go over some of our uh, our house rules. Number one, you can uh, make comments in chat. Like, for example, hey, where are you sitting today? What city are you in? I already see that there's Joe from Mooresville. Delaware in the house. David says, hello, guys. Jermaine says, hello. Minnesota. Minnesota. Norman, Oklahoma. Austin. We have people from all over the place. Maryland. Maine. Henderson, Nevada. Oh, you're just right down the street. Florida, Florida, Florida. Idaho. California, Austin. Ronert Park, California. Dave from Dayton, Ohio. Virginia. Claremont, Florida. New Jersey, Kentucky. We got people from all over the place. It's always so much fun. All right. So that's how you use the chat. If you have a question, like, hey, this is a, a situation I've run into. How is it taxed? Or, you know, somebody just says, can you roll a personal IRA into a newly set up solo? That's where you put that into question and answer. So that's perfect. And uh, and there's Sherry. Hey, Sherry, I think I need to I need to call you, right? Anyway, we got all sorts of fun. Lacrosse, Clearwater, we've got people from all over the place. Tax Hell, a LA, California. Yes, you are there with Lucifer in uh, in California. All right. If you have questions when we're not having one of these sessions, you can just email them on in at taxtuesday at andersonadvisors.com. And uh, that's where we pick up the questions. Jeff and I did not pick any of the questions today. We're going to blame it on somebody else who's not to be named. Because <laughs> we just looked at them and we're like, oh, criminy. People like to do that to us. They just like to give you a little, give you a little knuckle. All right. If you need a detailed response or need, or, you know, you have something that's really specific to your situation, like we're, we're going over from just giving you commentary and giving the rules to giving you advice, then you need to become a client. You can become a client in Platinum and you could ask all the questions you want. And we even have a tax hotline now where you could ask all the questions you want as part of your Platinum membership. So it's absolutely fantastic. You can talk to lawyers and accountants all day long if you want, if you're Platinum and no, there's no hourly on that one. Yeah, can I do a little promoting there? Yeah. The tax line is for general tax questions. They're not for detailed tax questions, and they're usually 15 minutes or less. Mm -hmm. uh, the calls are, for more information, you can look on our website. There's a phone number for that hotline. Also, if you need a tax consult, this is a great time to get in. Do it now. Do it now. Because in about a month, it's all hell's breaking loose. And speaking of all hell breaking loose, but we got a lot of really good accountants and tax attorneys and CPAs on board. I got Troy, Tanya, Ross, Kurt, Jared, Elliot, who we're mad at, Dutch, Dana, there's Patty and Matthew. We have a ton of people to answer your questions. And speaking of questions, let's go over the questions we're going to be answering today. Let's start with the first one. It says, if I move money from my SDIRA, that stands for self-directed IRA, to a Roth self-directed IRA, can I use bonus depreciation from real estate owned outside of my IRAs to offset the taxes I owe from the Roth conversion? Great question. We'll answer that. 
I'm new to real estate investing and haven't purchased property yet. Do I need to have an LLC to claim deductions this year on real estate related expenses already incurred? So we'll answer that one. Good question. I'm a small business owner with three other employees working for me. I'm trying to open a solo 401k or some other retirement plan for myself as an owner. I believe I need to offer the same to my employees as well, as well, which I can, but not interested in offering any matching contributions to other employees. How does it work? What is the best way to set this up? Great question so far, Jeff. What do you think? Let's keep diving into more. I won $10,000 worth of furniture from a raffle or gaming event. How do I report this on my income tax? Maybe it was like the price is right. Oh, could I didn't even think about that. I don't know. I'm a realtor operating as the sole proprietor. Should I be operating under a different entity to minimize taxes and liability? Over the years, I've received conflicting information and just don't know. So we'll answer that too. At what point in my real estate operation should I move from a single owner LLC to S-Corp for tax purposes? Well, you guys are asking some pretty good questions. So we're not going to be mad at Elliot too long. These are actually pretty decent. Not that he's the one to pick the questions, but... Yeah. <laughs> if I transfer my rental property into an LLC for the purposes of depreciation, will the LLC get a step up in basis to the current market value of the property? Or will the LLC inherit my lower basis? Do unrelated businesses have... This is two questions. Do, do unrelated businesses have to have separate Schedule Cs or LLCs? Or can I rebrand myself on my Schedule C, DBA, JL Enterprises and put everything together? What are the advantages or disadvantages? So that's going to be a long one, but we will answer it. In my father's will, he is leaving me a house. <laughs> yes, right? I've been living in it for nine years. So you're pre-testing your inheritance. If he puts my name on the title now along with his name, well, I have to pay taxes, more taxes. I prefer to do that now. That would be, what would the difference be? He does have a living will. Fantastic. Like, good to see somebody actually do some planning. Living will or a living trust, by the way. Like living wills for end of life decisions. Hopefully he has a living trust. Okay. I want to pay my 14-year-old to help me with my real estate business. Great idea, by the way. How do I pay her and legally claim it on my taxes? Do I pay through QuickBooks and just take taxes or just Venmo? Question mark. We are fixing the downstairs area of our home to rent out as a short-term renter rental. Is there any expenses that can be used in tax deductions? Should we run it under an entity? Great questions thus far. So speaking of great questions, you can always go in and get answers to questions by jumping on our uh, YouTube. This is my YouTube channel. Probably, what does it say there? 612 videos. I was going to say close to 600 videos. That is pretty darn close. Yeah, that's just over 600 videos. And on just about every topic you can think of, by all means, join. It's absolutely free. And if you subscribe and put the little bell, that little icon there that looks like a bell, it'll let you know when new videos are put up. It will not spam you. My partner, Clint Coombs, does a great job on real estate asset protection, too. His channel is very popular on YouTube. And uh, I would suggest that you go there as well. It's never a bad idea to continue to learn, invest in yourself type thing. Speaking of which, there's the YouTube channel. I think Patty already sent it out. Great channel. Set aside time to watch weekly. Thank you, John. And maybe he's talking about Clint's, but I'll <laughs> just say thank you no matter what. All right. If I move money from my self-directed IRA to a Roth self-directed IRA, can I use bonus depreciation 
from real estate owned outside of my IRAs to offset the taxes I owe from the Roth conversion. What is he talking about here, Jeff? So he's going to convert his traditional IRA. I'm going to just drop the self-directed part. It doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. He's going to drop, he's going to convert his traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. And when you do that, you have to pay tax on that conversion, the entire amount that you're converting to the Roth IRA. Yeah, because the Roth, you're not allowed to take a deduction on going in, but then you never pay tax on any of the growth or the money coming out as long as you follow the rules. Exactly. So after you do this conversion, any growth after that in the Roth IRA is not going to be taxable to you. Yeah. And people may say, hey, why do you have to pay tax? I put it into an IRA. Why do I have to pay tax if I put it into another IRA that just happens to be a Roth? And the reason's really simple. You took a tax deduction when you put it in the into the traditional IRA, and you don't get the tax deduction when you put it in a Roth. So if I move it into the Roth, they allow you to convert it, but you have to pay tax on the entire amount that you convert in the year that you rolled it. Yes. That's it. Now, can they use bonus depreciation? What are they talking about there? Possibly. Uh, it sounds like they're talking about doing a cost segregation on real estate, or maybe they have short-term rentals that they want to mm -hmm. uh, take de short-term depreciation on. So it's really going to depend on where that depreciation is coming from. If you're a real estate professional and have losses in your real estate coming from depreciation or cost segregation, you're going to be able to apply that against any other income, including this Roth conversion. Same for a short-term rental, if you're materially participating you're, you're going to be able to deduct anything coming from a cost segregation or, or let's just say a loss in general on your, your real estate property. Yeah. So, you know, it's the, it's the passive activity loss rules if it's investment real estate. So if these are rentals, then there's two ways to write them off. That's active participation and you make less than $150,000 a year. It phases out mm -hmm. between 100 and 150,000. So I'll just say 150,000 and less and you'll be able to get, so you'll be able to use some of that uh, or you're a real estate professional. Or as Jeff pointed out, the real estate is short-term rental and is not considered investment property. And then it's just considered ordinary business loss. So if we do the bonus depreciation and with a big loss, yes, it could wipe out our uh, conversion so long as you materially participate in that short-term rental. And if you have questions on this, guys, come to our tax and asset protection events, peruse the website. There's plenty of places that I go over the short-term rentals. I'll probably do another video on it here in the next couple of weeks. So be on the lookout because it is a very hot area right now. Um, one, thing makes I, a lot of sense. one thing I wanted to go back to is this Roth conversion. This is probably the least planned event that taxpayers do it's and actually should be one of the most planned events. Mm -hmm. uh, when's the best time to do a Roth conversion? When your income, other income is low. Yep. You, uh, you want to have a bad year and you want everything to be depressed then roll it. So you should have rolled it last year when the market took its big and you're like, oh, we're down. That's the time to convert it to Roth. But he, here's the math. It takes about 30 years to offset the tax deduction you get when you're doing a traditional plan. Mm -hmm. So the rule of thumb that I use is if your taxes are going to go down when you retire, then you should be taking a deduction when you contribute to a plan. So you should be doing what's called a, a, def, uh, a, a defined contribution or a defined benefit plan. You should be taking the deduction. If your income is going to go, your tax bracket's going to go up when you retire, or you're really young, like under 25, you can just pretty much say, there's so much time it's going to be cooking. It takes about 30 years to level out 
Uh, and if you're going to be retiring, obviously, if you're 25, 30 years is 55, like chances are you could be leaving that money in there for 60 years, then you do the Roth and, you know, maybe do that. But I see these folks that are in the highest tax brackets. They're making half a million, $600,000 a year, and they'll do a conversion. And I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing? They're like, oh, I got some really great investments. And I'm like, you just lost half your money. Like you literally have to get, when you lose half your money, you have to get a hundred percent return to make it back. Right. Like, yeah, it's going to take, it takes a long time. It's like, stop that. And another thing to consider on these Roth conversions is people seem to think, well, I need to take my entire IRA and convert it. No, no. you don't have to do that. You, do, you do a small bite-sized chunks. Jeff is right. Jeff is not wrong. He is absolutely right. How about this? Get your pencil out and just do it thoughtfully. <laughs> I always love the people that are like, I converted my IRA. How much was it? 300000 What's your other income? 300000 You're going to be really angry. <laughs> Uh, anyway, all right. I am new to real estate investing and haven't purchased property yet. Do I need to have an LLC to claim deductions this year on real estate related expenses already incurred? So, uh, no, you don't, an LLC really has nothing to do with taxes. Mm -hmm. it, it is strictly for, uh, liability protection, asset protection. And, and but they don't own any real estate. You don't own any real estate, so, so they, I'm not worried about you having an LLC at this point. I'm like, you don't have any real estate, so what are your real estate expenses? <laughs> Thinking about real estate, I had a kids Kit Kat. <laughs> so yeah, if you're going around looking for properties and not finding them and stuff like that, and doing research, none of that is probably deductible yeah. this year. It gets added to your basis of your property, right? You don't lose it, but you don't get to write it off. In other words, there's a there's a great case. I think it was Woody. The case was Woody, right? But he had gone and he did a bunch of trainings and he had spent a bunch of money in trainings. And we'll tell you, if you're going to do that, we were going to set up a C-Corp because it's going to be in business the day that it sets up. Otherwise, you have to actually have real estate in order to take deductions. You're not in the business yet. You're not an investor yet until you own the real estate. So this guy ran up like 40,000 bucks worth of education expenses, tried to write it off, didn't buy the property until right at the beginning of the next year. And the court correctly held, no, you don't get to write it off. You get to put it as basis into your first acquisitions. And it's like, it's it's absolutely bonkers. Somebody says, what's the math on your statement that it takes 30 years to benefit from a Roth conversion? It's like this. It takes, so so let's say that I put in $5,000 and I get a tax deduction. Let's say that my tax deduction is 20%. So it's $1,000 that it saved me. So my $5,000 contribution is really six. On the same token, I put money in as a Roth and I end up paying tax on the $5,000. So I there's a $1,000 makeup there that I miss out on. So $6,000 of benefit versus four, and it takes about 30 years at seven or 8% before they align themselves. Like you actually just go put it into your little calculator because I get such much more bang for my buck when I get the tax deduction as well. That's the statement. And I could just, there's a bunch of, you can go in there and just test it out. There's a, there's conversion modelers that you can go look at. So that's the, the math on my statement anyway. So going back to this actual question. All right. So somebody who's new, mm -hmm. chances are, it depends on what your expenses are. A lot of times we're going to suggest that you set up a corporation to capture a bunch of expenses. And it really depends on how large the amount is. It might be worth it. Or you just kick it down the road and you say like, when am I going to invest? If you invest before the end of the year, you're putting it into the property anyway, you're going to get that deduction over time. 
because it's still going to be part of the basis. Now, the one thing I will suggest is if you do find a property you want to purchase, you form that LLC first. Mm-hmm. That also provides you with a bit of anonymity on top of the liability protection. Yes. If you're buying an investment property, you try not to have your personal name on title. We, we often see people buy it in their name and then transfer it in LLC. I just assume you buy it in the LLC. Buy it in the LLC if humanly possible. Sometimes if you're getting traditional financing, they won't. They'll say, we want to close in your name, and then you'll put it in a trust, a land trust, and assign it to the LLC. Again, if these are new concepts for you, please join us at the tax and asset protection events. We teach them on the weekends. Almost every weekend we have one going on. And you can learn all about land trust, LLCs, corporations, and and why you use them and how they're used. Fun one. I'm a small business owner with three other employees working for me. So congratulations on being a small business owner and, mm-hmm. and employing three other people. I'm trying to open a solo 401k or some other retirement plan, because you're not going to get to do the solo. The solo means just you, right? For myself as owner, I believe I need to offer the same to my employees as well, which I can, but not interested in offering any matching to other employees. How does it work? Or what's the best way to set this up? What do you think, Jeff? Uh, A 401k is a fringe benefit that has discrimination rules all over the place. And that means, yes, you can open up a 401k, and have your employees participate if they're assuming they're eligible to participate. However, you can't pay yourself a match and not pay them a match. You have to treat everybody equally. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it might be based on compensation. You may be paying yourself a half a million dollars and them $10,000 a year. So that match is going to vary depending on circumstances. And we often see that, especially like in profit sharing plans, that it's going to be based on a percentage of uh of compensation. What if the employee says, I don't want to contribute? I don't want to be, I don't want to participate at all. They can opt out. And I believe that opt out is a forever opt out. Yeah. They're going to say, Hey, I don't want to be part of your 401k. It's weird, but people do it. Like here we have over 550 people now. And it's still, it's a, not everybody participates in the 401k, even though we do have matching. Right. And, and it's possible you may have people that, who are not eligible, but that's since they changed the laws regarding eligibility down to anybody who works more than 500 hours in a year is eligible, mm-hmm. it, it becomes really difficult to do that. Absolutely. So you're going to get your pencil out and you're going to look and see, even if you're doing, uh, like, let's say you're doing a traditional 401k or defined benefit plan, mm-hmm. especially if you're a high income earner, you might want to look at the, at the defined benefit plans because we can put hundreds of thousands of dollars into those plans on an annual basis on, on your behalf. What you do is you look and say, what's the amount that I have to contribute for the employee? And if it's like 90% of the benefits flowing to you, then all you're doing is you're saving a ton of money and you're still benefiting your employees. Mm -hmm. Don't look at it and say, I don't want to participate and I don't want my employees to participate. Look at it a little bit differently because we can put vesting schedules in. They can do a whole bunch of different things when when you're putting together a plan is look and say, what's the benefit? What are the costs? And just see whether the juice is worth the squeeze. You guys probably heard me say that before. I usually look at like a 7x return. If I'm going to spend a dollar, I want $7 in return. So if I'm going to spend some money doing a plan, I want to see, I want to make sure that that benefit is mostly to me. And if if that means that I'm giving money to my employees, you know, God bless them. That's it. And it works. And this is a great benefit. If, If you really like your employees and want to keep them, yeah, this is a great benefit to give them. It, it works. It doesn't have to be that expensive. But if you, if you don't want to, then there's still traditional IRAs that you can still do. Like if you just don't want to have a business retirement plan, there's other vehicles you can mm-hmm. use. You can use an HSA. You can use an IRA. 
Uh, there's other vehicles that you can use that will provide you with some certain benefit. You can do non-qualified plans like IULs where you're dumping money into those as well, where you can discriminate. So there's other options for you, but if you want just your, you know, the typical, hey, I want to have a 401k and I want to be able to push money into it, and I, but I don't want to pay too much for my employees, then you really just want to take a look and see, all right, what are the rules that I can impose? How do I avoid having uh, discrimination rules? They have something called a safe harbor where you might have to make contributions on their behalf so that you don't become top heavy in your plan. This is why you hire experts on it. And then don't come in with a with with a decision already made in your head. Like, no, I will not benefit my employees at all. But if if you give a dollar and it saves you seven, you know, you probably take that action, even if it is benefiting your employee. All right, I won ten thousand dollars worth of furniture from my raffle or gaming event. How do I report this on my income tax, Jeff? Well, whoever you want it from should be issuing you a ten ninety nine misc miscellaneous with ten thousand dollars of other income on it. And you'll report it on your tax return as other income. Uh, it'll be taxed at your ordinary rate. So if you're in the 22% bracket, you're going to pay $2,200 of tax on this. But no employment tax. No employment taxes. Yeah. So you once furniture $10,000. That might be like a really nice couch. Now it looks. If you wanted it restoration hardware, it's a couple of uh, it's a couple of pillows. <laughs> and, and you know, this is exactly how a lot of people were getting trouble by winning prizes on game shows and all, where they were getting all these we prizes. Had we had one of a, Did you? I'm not going to say who it was, but she won a she won a car, and the, the taxes on the car were like, I don't want the car. Just give me cash because I don't want to. I have to pay the tax. Like you, I want a thirty thousand dollar car. You may as well just. You just added $30,000 to your income. And you're like, wait a second. You mean I got to pay seven or eight grand? Oh man, that sucks. <laughs> I don't want the car anymore. You can just keep it. <laughs> right? Yeah, though. No. I'll take the I'll take the furniture, unless it's horrible. If it's if it's Paisley, I, I don't want it. <laughs> you just go out and sell it. Uh, I'm a realtor operating as a sole proprietor. Should I be operating under a different business entity to minimize taxes and liability? Over the years, I've received conflicting information and just don't know. You're looking at me. Uh, so, what do you think? So I'm going to go back to the very first part of this question. When you say you're a realtor, you're either a real estate agent or a real estate broker. They're that realtor, that little TM. You could be a realtor. And why there's a difference in the real estate agent and the real estate broker is I think it has more to do with state laws. And, yeah. and what what other real estate brokers are willing to do for you. With Somebody you. says, I just want a car. Yes, Bridget. <laughs> now you got the tax bill on it. I'm sorry. It's obnoxious today. Who um, want a car? Bridget says she want a car. Yeah, Bridget want a car. You guys can't see this, but very excited for you, Bridget. It must be fun. Unless it's a Yugo. Don't drive the Yugo. So the, the, the problem with the real estate agent side of it is it's not a tax issue. It's a state law or what your broker is willing to do with you. A lot of brokers won't work with S corporations, which would be, if you're making good money as a realtor, I'd want you in an S corporation. Yes. So here's the deal. There is a way, even if your broker will not pay your S corp, there's still a way to get it in there. And I always forget the name of the case. It begins with an F and I always screw it up. It's like Fleming or something like that. But there's a, there's a case on point where if you have a shareholder agreement or an employment agreement with your S-Corp and your S-Corp lets the broker know that you're under their exclusive control 
and that the, you're operating on, on behalf of the S-Corp, which you're doing for yourself if it's an S-Corp. Like, you're like, hey, then even if they make it to you, the IRS is going to allow you to deposit that into your S-Corp account. Uh, the other way is a lot of accountants, and I'm just going to say this in front of Jeff because I'm sure he's either going to say yay or nay, but a lot of accounts that I've worked with over the years, they'll just take it all on a Schedule C and expense it all directly into the S-Corp anyway. They'll just be like, okay, here's the workaround. I got 30 grand. I'm going to subtract off 30 grand, and then I'm going to report 30 grand over here on 1120S. And we will probably have to do that in your first example where you're saying you're an employee of the S corporation. Mm -hmm. Is if they're issuing a 1099 still to you rather than the S corporation, we're probably going to have to do something like that. We, one thing we generally want to do is if we get any kind of tax document, we want to make sure that ends up on the tax return, even if we're just taking it right back off. Yep. Yep. And that's, but here's the whole deal. If you make your money, let's say you're a typical realtor. I think the average realtor was around 70,000 last year. Um, It might be a little less than that, but let's just say 70,000 and you make $70,000. Let's say you had some expenses. So it got down to 50. You're going to pay old age, death and survivors and Medicare on that entire 50,000. It doesn't sound like a lot, but the math is 14.1%. In addition to your state income taxes, in addition to your federal income taxes. So you get a little whack right in the head, right? It just doesn't feel good when you're like, hey, wait a second. I thought I was like, I'm only, I only made 50 grand. Why am I paying 30% of it over to the IRS? The way you nix that is you run it through an S corp or an LLC taxed as an S corp. Mm-hmm. A lot of the sole proprietors I meet out there that are real estate agents are actually LLCs. You're one document away from making that into an S corp. It's just a 2553 you file on behalf of the, uh, of the LLC, but you could just take yourself a little salary. You could defer the entire amount of that salary at that level directly into a 401k if you want to. Like you could just boosh, immediately turbocharge your your uh, your uh, retirement plan. And then the rest of it is not subject to social security. So at a minimum, you might save yourself, let's just say that under that scenario, we had $50,000 of net income. Let's say we paid ourselves 15 of it. And all we did is pay ourselves $15,000, okay? The remaining, what would that be? 15, so 35,000 times 14%. So 35,000, I'll get my little calculator out. I'll tell you exactly what it'll save you. It's uh, 14.1 times 35, one, two, three. It's going to save you just right around 40, almost five grand a year, right? That's what we want. Plus you get to do an accountable plan. You're actually going to lower your taxes further because you get to write more things off than you do as a sole proprietor. You could do administrative office for your house. You can do the 280A. I can reimburse like my entire cell phone instead of just its work work portion. And the last year that we had the data from the IRS, the audit rate for sole proprietors making, it was right around the $100,000 mark. I think it was 2.4% versus the S-Corp was point. For 0.2%. So we're talking about a thousand percent or, you know, it's a massively different uh, increase in the amount of audits for sole proprietors versus S corps. Plus when sole proprietors get audited, they lose as of last year, it was 94 and 95% of the time, depending on whether it was a field audit or a correspondence audit, which means you were a punching bag for the IRS. If you were a sole proprietor, that's why you'll hear guys like me saying, no, I don't want to be a sole proprietor. Even though 70% of the people are out there operating as sole proprietors, the small businesses, bad idea. You're putting a big old bullseye on your head and you're going to lose your audit because you're not doing the things that are necessary. The IRS does not say, oh, you're a sole proprietor. You only have to keep these records. 
oh, you're an S-corp, you have to keep more records. No, it's identical. And people get confused because they hear people say there's less formalities when you're a sole proprietor. That is not true. 100% falsehood. What they're saying is you don't have to do anything in order to be a business. And therefore, they think it's easier. Ha, ha, ha. The problem is, is the IRS doesn't care. You have to do the who, what, where, when, and why on all your expenses, and you got to show it's business related. And when you are operating as a sole proprietor, most folks have one account. Everything goes in and goes out. They're buying their groceries out of it. They're paying expenses out of it. And the IRS says, okay, you're going to write off a portion of your cell phone. What were the business calls? Let me see your log. Oh, you want to write off part of your car? Let me see your, 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 your uh, mileage log. And you're like, what's that? What are these things you ask for? And you just get torched. Jeff, you've been doing this, what, 30-something years? Yeah. How, oh, yeah. <laughs> Long time. <laughs> how often, like when, when you've had to deal with sole proprietors, how often, like, just we'll do the reverse. How often are their books actually in order? Not very often. Yeah. And the IRS beats you like a drum 94 to 95% of the time. So what I say is let's stay out of harm's way do this as an S-corp. It's not even a question. The only question is, will the broker pay the S-corp? And then even if they won't, we still have a workaround. And you're going to save money. It's going to put money in your pocket. It's going to save you. Like, again, if, if somebody says, hey, $5,000 a year and all you got to do is an extra tax return, by the way, that's not even really true because the the Schedule C in the 1120S that you file as an S-corp, Schedule C is what you file as a sole proprietor on your personal tax. They're almost identical. Like they're it's the same information you're filing. Again, that's why I get so frustrated with these folks that say, oh, no, the formalities are not nearly as high with a sole proprietorship. Yeah, they are. They're every bit as hard from a tax standpoint. There's no real distinguishing, but I get to save a whole bunch of money if I make money. And I'll take 5,000 bucks a year on, on 50. It usually is right around seven to 10% that it saves you. I'll take that action all day long. Yeah. I work my butt off and I'm trying to get a profit. If I can double my profit just by the type of entity, I'll take that in a heartbeat. And that's a really nice vacation every year that you're getting extra. I'll do that all day long, even on Sundays. All right. At what point of my real estate operation should I move from a single owner LLC to S Corp for tax purposes? What do you think, Jeff? If we're talking about investment real estate, rental properties, you don't ever want to put them in an S corporation. It's a bad idea. If you are investing in real estate, I'm just going to reiterate that. Do not put it into an S corp. There's tax consequences. It's rare that you do it in an S corp. I'll just put it that way. Sometimes when you buy your own house and you're doing it on, on a installment sale, you're trying to get your 121 exclusion. You opt out of the installment sale and you have a big depreciable asset saying an S corp. That's, that's the really the exception to the rule. Otherwise, what Jeff just said, write it, put it in big, bold letters and circle it. Don't put your real estate investments in an escort. Yeah. Uh, you could put them in a partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the advantages we've talked about in the distance past is uh, bankers, lenders tend to look at rental income from a pass-through entity more favorably than they do your standard Schedule E rentals on your 1040. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why, but they do. Now, here's the reason. So... A lot of times when you're underwriting, mm -hmm. Freddie and Fannie will say, here's the rule. If it's on page one of your Schedule E, which means it's a disregarded entity and it's flowing onto page one. Uh, so the, what they said here is a single owner LLC and they have rental properties in it. They only use 70% of that net income. So uh, versus if it's on page two 
they'll use 100% of that income. And it's small distinguishing, but it makes getting loans and levering those assets a little bit easier. And so uh, we've seen that. And then the other thing we've seen is, especially if you're selling real estate that requires financing, uh, I see this mostly in commercial, but if you don't have a separate tax return for that particular property, it makes underwriting next to impossible for somebody who's acquiring it. So we, you know, I know that Clint had a client that came in, I think they were in two failed transactions and they were trying to figure out what was going on because they had buyers, but the buyers couldn't get through underwriting. And Clint spotted it pretty quick. And he said, is there a K1? Is there a 1065 on this business? And they said, no, it's it's just me. It's going on to my personal return. Uh, it was an LLC, single owner, disregarded, going on to the individual's tax return. And uh, and we figured it out pretty quickly that in underwriting, they were they were requesting the tax returns for the particular property. And there were no tax returns that they could provide because it was going on to a 1040. And the person wasn't going to give them their 1040. So when you do a, let's say it's a LLC, and we're not going to make it an S-corp, we're just going to make a partnership. We could just add another spouse, or we could add a, a, another trust. We could put something else in there as an owner. Uh, even if it's flowing under your return, it's okay. What we care about is that we have a 1065 that is being filed with that property, especially if it's highly valuable, especially if it's a property that's going to require some sort of financing for a buyer, because it's going to make their life easier, which makes it more valuable to you when you go to sell. Uh, you never want to be that person that's got something done. And for whatever reason, the way that you've set your uh, situation up, that is causing them to fail in their underwriting. So they can't buy your property, even though they want to, they can't get it done simply because they're missing a simple piece like a tax return. And they just, uh, or underwriting can't underwrite it because there's not enough income on a return. Or you find that out, like you're trying to buy a house your personal residence even. And they're like, hey, you don't make enough money. And you're like, but wait a second, I have all this income. And they're like, yeah, but we can't use it all. We can only use 70% of it. Anything else you want yeah, to add on that? One of the things that we seem to deal with constantly is I want to refinance my property. It's in an LLC or a partnership, which is even worse in this case. And the bank wants you to pull it out. Oh, the property? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pull the property out of the LLC. If it's in an S-corp, this is catastrophic. Yes. If you have to take a property out of an S-corp, it's considered a payment. It's like a distribution. Yes. And so you get to pay tax on that. People are like, no, no, I'm just going to take it out, refi it, put it back in. The act of taking it out is a taxable transaction. So if it's in a partnership or in your name, yeah, you have to take it out. And, and it's okay. Your name, single owner LLC, partnership LLC, you could take it out, refi it, put it back in, non-taxable transaction. S-corp, C-corp, LLC taxes, and S-corp, LLC taxes, a C-corp taxable transaction to take it out and refinance it. Now, one thing I've noticed, Toby, is a lot of people, they go to one mortgage broker or bank or whatever, and it doesn't feel like they shop around. I mean, the bank starts making it hard for them and they don't mm -hmm. seem to say, well, I'm going to go check out my other options. Well, you want, you local banks are great. And then people that actually understand real estate. And we have them. Like if you're, if you're an Anderson client, you already have Anderson's funding department. Mm -hmm. We have lenders that will lend just to the LLC. They're non-recourse loans. We have lenders that will do portfolio loans in the funding community. We have plenty of folks that love real estate and they know it's a good bet. So you said non-recourse loan. And I don't know if people realize how huge that is. That means the LLC is on the hook for that loan. And you are not. You are not. Yeah. 
yeah. So like you're, you're that's the holy grail of real estate investing is when I don't have to worry about it. It's like Donald Trump. I think he famously said, you know, you only want borrow a little bit from the bank. It's your problem. You borrow enough. Eventually it's the bank's problem, right? It's uh, we want to make sure that they're not looking at me, that, that I'm not on the hook for it. You want to make sure that it's just the asset. And there's lots of asset based lenders that once they get to know you and they know what you're doing, they will loan on just the asset and they won't hold you responsible. But then again, you have to create a relationship with these folks and they're very specialized. You're not going to get that going to your local bank unless it's maybe a credit union or a very, very small local regional bank. And boy, those guys have been under fire lately. Mm-hmm. So lending right now is tough. Uh, but anyway, all right, Jeffro. Yes, sir. If I transfer my rental property into an LLC for the purposes of depreciation, will the LLC get a stepped, step up in basis to the current market value of the property or will the LLC inherit my lower basis? So this is, well, this will be question number one. So it looks like there's two questions. What does the LLC receive if I contribute property into an LLC? Does it magically get to start depreciating this thing at a higher amount or are they stuck with whatever the basis was that I bought it at? So if you contribute a property into any kind of entity that you own, it gets your basis. Your basis. So if I contribute my house that's worth $350,000, but I only paid 100 for it, 100 is the LLC's basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's another rule we don't ever talk about because uh, we haven't seen it happen in so long is if I bought a property for $200,000 and when I put it into service in my LLC and it's only worth 150, it's 150. It's a, the, yeah, your, your basis is now 150 in that. Fair market value. For depreciation. Or, or the, uh, or the, the basis, the depreciable basis, whichever one's less, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so I guess here's the thing. This is very simple. It's the LLC isn't inheriting it. It's not going to get a step up in basis. It's just going to get your basis when you contribute it to the LLC. Question number two, do unrelated businesses have to separate Schedule C's or LLC's? Or can I rebrand myself on my Schedule C, DBA, JL Enterprises and put everything together? What are the advantages or disadvantages? We can talk about grouping, but most times I don't see a whole lot of advantage to grouping uh, unless it's like a real estate activity with an operation or something like that. Active businesses, like in this case, let's say that one's a pizza shop and one's a plumbing business, mm-hmm. right? You wouldn't put those on one Schedule C. No. They're, they're technically, they're separate. Could you do a DBA for you? Yeah. You, could you do two business? Like, let's say that I had a pizza business and I have two locations. One's, uh, you know, Summerlin Pizza and the other one's Southern Highland Pizza. Mm-hmm. I could set up two DBAs. There's no problem yep. doing that. I wouldn't because we don't like sole proprietorships. So stop it, right? We want to make sure that it's a that it's some sort of business. And then uh, there's other options that you still have available to you uh, where you can, like you mentioned LLCs, it looks like disregarded LLCs, but if you're going to have an active business, you might want to make it into that S-Corp again. Yeah. And then that S-Corp could have something called Q-Subs, which are qualified as subsidiary um, LLCs or, or, or inks that are all ignored and put onto one tax return yep. regardless, or you could just have disregarded LLCs and you could have different businesses, different locations, whatever, not, and you could have one parent and that's like a holding company again. All true. So you have options. Let's just, yep. let's just scramble yep. them eggs. But, um, it is one of those things where you just want to sit down with an accountant or an attorney that knows what they're doing. Do not go to H&R Block. Do not go to some chain thing. Do not go to the person that does not do businesses 
go to people that actually deal with businesses day in and day out. You know, like Anderson's a perfect example. You just talk to us. We do this, you know, 20 something years, 25, 26 years and uh, talk to people that actually do it day in and day out because there's nuances to these things and you'll get all your options and you can make an intelligent decision as opposed to just doing what you heard or what you saw on a AI told you. I think everybody's using AI now. Hey, look, there's Clint. And uh, we do the tax and asset protection workshop. I think I mentioned it earlier. It looks like we have several coming up, including we have a live four-day event, which is going to be really, really cool. We're going to go over on day one. It's an infinity day, which means we're going over stock trading, real estate trading, and even residual businesses, meaning businesses that create residual income. It's going to be a fun day. We're going to be hitting that. Uh, plus three days of tax and asset protection. Believe it or not, you're going to have four days in Vegas. Uh, that is September 14th through the 17th. But the free live virtual events that we do on the weekends, there's August 5th and August 17th. Those are great. If you want to learn about land trusts, LLCs, corporations, S-Corp, C-Corp, taxation of real estate, and even some legacy planning, we go over it all. If you want to know what bonus depreciation, 1031s, 121s, uh, writing things off, administrative office for the home, all that fun stuff. We knock it out during that event. It's absolutely free and you could absolutely register. Uh, it, it do so. It looks like August 5th. I'll be coming up here this weekend. So, but by all means, I would jump in there and, uh, and continue to educate yourself. All right, let's talk about death and dying. Somebody says the father's will. In my father's will, he's leaving me a house. I've been living in it for nine years. If he puts my name on the title, now, along with his name, will I have to pay taxes? More taxes. I prefer to do that now. What would the difference be? He does have a living will. Okay, so we discussed this a little bit previously. Um, and what happens here, if he puts you on as like a joint tenant or right to survivorship, or he is actually gifting half of his interest to you. So he would have to file a gift tax return for his basis in that half, or actually his fair market value in that half. The fair market value on that half is not his basis, you're right. And uh, it depends on the value of it. it. I can't imagine a case where it'd be underneath the the, the exclusion. There's a, what's the amount? $17,000 a year, 15,000? Yeah, I forget what okay, it is. 17 this year. 17 that you can give to somebody without having to report it. Otherwise, we all have like a, what is it now? 12 point some, 12.95 million dollar lifetime gift exclusion and estate exclusion. So you could use up some of that if you really want to, but I wouldn't, you know, there's, there's, there's several things that, that, that come into play. Let me, let me kind of, unless you want to knock them out. I don't want to no, go ahead and talk about what jumped out to all of us. Yeah. Well, when you gift an asset, the gift, the basis of that asset is what you get. So if the father, you've had this house for a long time, it's probably appreciated significantly. If the father does nothing else and just passes away, you get the new basis is the step up in basis is the fair market value when he passes away. So like if you sold that house immediately after he passed, you wouldn't pay any tax. The way you're doing it now, your, your basis is going to be his basis mm -hmm. on your half. So no matter what, you're going to end up paying a bunch of tax. You're going to have gain that you would otherwise avoided had he not done it. Number two is I just don't like joint tenancy no. on non-married partner because you, your dad again he gets sick you're liable on 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 that the house could be used to extinguish that debt and vice versa if you do something you could just cost your dad his asset because all of a sudden they can come in and, and, and take it if you're a joint tenant 
So I, I'm not a big fan of mixing things up under these circumstances. I get what you're trying to do, but if you want to, like, there's just such a big benefit in the step up and basis. Last thing I would say is when you say a living will, that's an end of life decision-making device. It's not a living trust. I'd make sure that the property is actually in a trust so that you don't get tied up uh, in any sort of proceeding. If you did, you know, you so you ignore what we're saying and you say, hey, I'm okay. I'm not going to sell the house ever. I'm not worried about the step up in basis and losing tax benefit. And you decide you want to do the joint tenants with rider survivorship and not a tenant in common, but you say we're going to be joint tenants, then you don't have to worry necessarily about the living will or the trust because when your dad passes, you'll be the surviving tenant. You'll automatically inherit that property. But I just just have to say, I've seen this. I saw this with four siblings. Dad was worried that the estate tax exclusion was going to go away. Mm. This was, uh, I think, 15 years ago or thereabouts when the, the it used to be like a million dollar exclusion. When I started, it was $600,000 exclusion. Then it went up to 5 million. Like it's been all over the place right now. It's really huge. But dad was really worried about uh, losing his building, a big chunk of his building to the inheritance taxes, to the estate taxes when he passed away. So his accountant put it in a limited partnership and gifted a big chunk of it to the kids. And then dad passed away. And it was the year that there was no estate tax. The exclusion was unlimited. 2010. Yep. And the kids inherited that property, but they didn't get the step up in basis. And it was millions of dollars. And they sold it and they came to me and were like, how do we avoid the tax on this? Our accountant is saying we're going to owe. It was more than seven figures. It was a big chunk of money. And I was like, you know, you can go back in time and yell at the accountant, but you, you know, he transferred it. You got his basis. And so if they had done nothing, they would have paid zero tax. But because of what they did, they ended up paying, it was more than a million bucks in tax. I just remember like, this is really not a fair result, but you know, the accountant talked him into doing it. So I tend to be like, hmm. And you know what? My, my mom lived in the same house for a really long time and moved at the age of 89. And the reason I bring that up is if you do this tenant, joint tenants mm-hmm. uh, thing and, and your dad does decide, no, this house is too big. I want to get out of it. Oh. Mm-hmm. His section 121 exclusion, which would have been pretty important to him, is now very confused. Yep. He's not living in it. So like you, you, this, this is the kid's been living in it for nine years. Oh, I was assuming his dad was living in it. Too. Yeah, but I mean, maybe the dad's in there too. We don't know. It doesn't really specify. He's leaving me a house. It says a house, not his house. So I imagine that, uh, that it must be, you know, hmm, 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 right? So yeah, because the 121 exclusion requires that you live in it two of the last five years as primary residence and that you own the house. There are some weird little exceptions for married couples and divorces and when somebody passes and things like that, but but that's generally the rule. So you live in it as your primary residence, not as a secondary, but primary, and you own the property. So in this case, uh, the individual, the, the child's been living it for nine years, but they don't own it, so they would not get the 121 exclusion. Nope. So again, I would just be like, don't do anything. I would just say, hey, you know what? Let Make sure that it's in an estate plan. I would yep. use a living trust. Make sure that... If dad happens, something something happens to dad, there's no tax and it's so much better. Yeah. At a minimum, your dad should have a living trust, not a living will. Well, he can have a living will. Living trust with a pour over will. Yeah. Uh, and the pour over will just picks up all those assets that aren't. Yeah, but just put it in the living trust. Just fund that trust. All right. 
we are fixing the downstairs area of our home to rent out as a short-term rental. Guys, short-term rental just means average usage is seven days or less. Is there any expenses that can be used in tax deduction? Should we run it under an entity? Jeff Roll. Part I had the issue with was if this is a house you're living in, I'm not sure you can put it under an entity just for that business portion. What some people do is this called house hacking is they'll put the whole house into an LLC and they'll take the, the as much of the equity out of the house as they can so that if there is something that happens, there's not a lot for a creditor to take because chances are it would be somebody that's renting it. Let's say that they rent the downstairs and they fall down the stairs, you know, bust their head and they sue you for a gajillion dollars. You don't want them to take your house. Number two is if they're, they're downstairs in a basement area and, you know, I, I can't see this happening with a short term, but in long term, you'll see people, you know, it's a moist area. They're not really cleaning it. Mm. And they end up getting a little mold. And then they say, hey, you, you've caused me irreparable harm. And in California, those things are seven figure cases. So what you're looking at on the short term rental is, hey, let's put a box around the house, which is an LLC. It could be, you know, don't worry, it doesn't ruin your 121 exclusion. It doesn't generally, uh, you'd want to look at the state and make sure it doesn't cost you a homestead if you have one. But, um, but that's number one. Two is short-term. And what is short-term rental from a tax standpoint? Uh, short-term rental is considered a trade or business. So it's ordinary income. And if you make a profit on it and you're materially participating, you could also be paying self-employment tax. But if you are just, we would depreciate. So somebody says, we're fixing the downstairs area. The f- repairs that you're doing down there would be deductible. If you're doing improvements to the property, it would be depreciable. So you're going to get to write those things off eventually, even if it's not this year, but there's a good chance you're going to write off a chunk of it on that portion of the home. Yeah. If you're drywalling, partitioning, putting in a bathroom, that's all going to be improvements and you're going to have to depreciate that. Yep. If you're repairing damage to the home where you're just restoring it to the, the where it should have been previously, mm-hmm. that's deductible as a repair. Yes, but and then keep in mind that this is an area of the home. So let's say we have the basement, we have the upstairs, and in the upstairs, you decide you're going to fix up and improve the 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 uh, kitchen. You can't write that off to the downstairs, right? No. The downstairs is its own little area. The IRS says you just treat it like it's its own little portion, and then if it's square footage, you could use depreciation based off the square footage of the house, but the repairs and everything else are for that actual work that's being done and things that you've done down there. So you're going to get a nice tax deduction for doing this. It's called house hacking. It's very common. It's very profitable because it's just extra space. And by the way, we would haul, we would solve the housing crisis tomorrow if everybody put their empty bedrooms up for rent, right? It was like, we could fix it. Then you'd have a bunch of strangers living in your house. But I always think of stuff like that. I realize how many people have extra bedrooms. I'm always like, those are little money-making machines if you want them. Uh, had plenty of clients that did the house hacking and moved because they were making so much money renting the rooms out on weekly basis in some cases. And uh, they eventually bought more properties and did it again. I have one gal, she did three properties and retired herself. So was making $17,000 a month in Tacoma, Washington. Yep, she just kept moving. And she was like, this is great because uh, it's, there's not a lot of affordable housing up there. So she did that with multiple houses. She'd buy four and five bedroom houses. Keep doing it. All right. So a lot of fun was had today. If you like this type of information, I'm just going to say go to my uh, YouTube channel. We record these Tax Tuesdays, and you'll see them put up 
as videos, you'll see, usually it says Tax Tuesday on the thumbnail, uh, somewhere on the thumbnail, it'll say, here's the topics we covered, and then it'll say Tax Tuesday. So if if you like this type of information, you like feeding your, your little tax itch, you can go in there and look around and see, are there other ones that I haven't attended yet? and and go and see whether or not that interests you and if there's any topics that hit you somebody says wow you're really going to finish in one hour we used to do a really long ones oh yeah yeah hour and a half two hours yeah uh, never over two hours but. but we have so much fun we've done over i think i forget how many we've done hey patty how many of these have we done do you remember is it over 200 we've been doing these for a long time but we like to just uh, sometimes we go a little we go a little nutty 200 next time all right. I think we used to go longer in the past because you'd have to translate what the accountant said. <laughs> My little accountant translator. <laughs> I took bonus depreciation. Here's what Jeff's saying. I did a 168K deduction and I did on the 15-year property only and not the seven and the five. We we opted out and I'm like, oh, guys, stop that. All right. Uh, tax and asset protection event. Make sure that if you haven't been to one that you do register, uh, they are worth it. They're fun. And Clint's a really good speaker. And I'm and I'm decent, and so we're going to hit you up with all sorts of good stuff on uh, land trusts, living trusts, Wyoming statutory trusts, Wyoming LLCs, other state LLCs, series LLCs, S corp, C corp. You'll learn all about those. <laughs> yes, yeah, so he says you have to interpret what I say. Sometimes I go a little quick. All right, if you have questions that come up and you're just sitting there, a burning question. I'm going to sell my house. I've made way too much money on it. How do I avoid tax on that? Shoot it on in at Tax Tuesday to Anderson Advisors, or just go to our website and visit us there as well. Thank you to, and I'm going to see if I can see all the names on there right now. Dana's on, Dutch is on, Elliot's on, Jared is on, Ross is on, Tanya's on, Troy is on. I even saw Sergey in there, Patty and Matthew. They answered over 184 written questions. There's still a few more. And what I'll say is this I'm going to end the presentation now but we will not kick you all out. If you have a question that's pending, you go ahead and wait. We will answer all of your questions. We are not going to leave you hanging. So I just want to say thank you so much uh, for visiting us, and we will see you in a couple of weeks at the next Tax Tuesday. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 